Uh, if you go ahead and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, we're going to finish off 2 Timothy 3 today, so we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 17 in 2 Timothy chapter 3, so say that one more time, 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 through 17, uh, and what we're going to pick up, we're again kind of midstream in what Paul has been addressing towards Timothy uh, Timothy being a young co-laborer that had been on Paul's missionary journeys with him, now left behind uh, at the church at Ephesus to help establish and to strengthen it. Uh, and Paul has been gearing Timothy up for difficulty, right? So last week, at the beginning of chapter 3, it says, understand this, in the last days there will be difficulty. And we framed that understanding that from Jesus' resurrection until now, the church has been existing in difficult times the last days. I, and with an understanding that those are like grow, uh, uh, pregnancy pains, childbearing pains that, that increase in intensity, and yet the church has always existed, and the New Testament church has always existed in places and times of difficulty. So much so that, that it should be the expectation of every follower of Jesus to encounter some difficulty in life, uh, which runs pretty contrary. We talked about this last week, and, and maybe even in chapter 1. This runs contrary to how we normally approach life. Our approach to life is primarily, how can I escape difficulty? How can I keep discomfort from encroaching into my life? How can I have what I want without difficulty. And yet, Paul tells Timothy over and over again in this letter to stand firm and to, to, to suffer just as Paul has suffered. In fact, in chapter 1, he says, share in suffering with me. In chapter 2, he says, share in suffering like a good soldier. Share in suffering. Uh, and that's not just a personal encouragement from Paul to Timothy, but rather that is the call for every believer in Jesus in every place throughout all of times is to share in Jesus' suffering even as we have shared in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And so in chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, where we started out last week, where last week was more the doom and gloom aspect of this, ha- this, this chapter. Because Paul says, understand that the last days will become times of difficulty, and then he lays out a laundry list of things that will be true of people in those difficult times. Uh, People who will be lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, all of that rather than lovers of God. And then plays that out in all of the different kind of adjectives, brutal, uh, uh, reckless, uh, swollen with conceit, arrogant, proud, unappeasable, slanderous. Like it, it, It looks really really bad. And in this next part of the chapter where we're stepping into verses 10 through 17 is the good news in a sense of what Paul is encouraging Timothy and every other believer to do in times of difficulty. So if you can imagine if if Paul had just stopped the letter at verse 9 and said, man, things are horrible, but someday like what, what is true will be known. So good luck, Timothy. Pat on the back. Go on your way. But instead, he says, he counters it and gives, this is what is true in difficult times. This is what is typical of behavior in difficult times. This is what is true of those who are opponents to the gospel. This is true of those who are trying to lead people astray from the gospel. This is true of people who are preaching other truths as if they were truth. But then he comes into verse 10, and if you'll just pick up there with me, he says, you 
however. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from all of them the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, if you remember back in chapter 2 and verse 2, Paul encouraged Timothy, commanded Timothy, to take the things that he had heard from Paul and entrust them to faithful or reliable men who be able to teach others also. Right? Paul commanded Timothy to take what he learned and reproduce it in other people. And we've talked about throughout the letter of 2 Timothy how God has designed the church to be multiplying itself or reproducing itself. Right, so the, 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 the church is a, a steady stream of God's faithfulness through ordinary people who are simply entrusting the truth of who God is to the next person. That's why each one of us who has a faith in Jesus is in this room. Somebody shared it with us. Somebody shared it with that person. Somebody shared it with that person. And we'd get really tired if I kept doing that all the way back to Jesus, wouldn't we? And now, Paul says, he, he comes back, he circles back to this idea. He says, remember what you've heard from me, right, in, in chapter 2, verse 2. And now, he says, in verse 10, you have followed, he's coming back to this point. Timothy, I taught you. You watched me. You know me. And it's it, compared to those who are living a fraudulent faith. An empty spirituality in verses 1 through 9. Those that Timothy is supposed to avoid, but now he says, but you know, because you followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions. And the way that we could boil this down is, is that Paul lived out his faith in front of Timothy and countless other followers of Jesus. So much so that Paul could say, step back, Timothy, and look at my life. You have followed my example. So one of the things that is, the the question that I would ask before we get too much farther into this, is Paul says, you should follow my teaching, but he also says, follow my conduct. And a question for you and me, for me, before we get very far into 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 17, is this question. Does my faith flow into action? Is my life any different because of my profession of faith in Jesus? Is my life, are my actions any different because of this faith in Jesus? Think about this. Paul is inviting Timothy. He says, you have followed what I have taught and you have followed my pattern for life. Now, if we just stop really quick, one of the things that would become evident in this is that if Paul is wrong 
guess who else is now wrong? Timothy. And guess who else is probably wrong alongside of Timothy? Every other person that Paul taught as he established churches preached the gospel. Can we with confidence say, if you were to, to walk alongside of me and hear my teaching, my doctrine, not just as a pastor, but as any member of the congregation, any person here, if someone were to walk alongside of you and hear what you would teach and watch how you would live, would they end up at Jesus? That's, that's the aim. Right, And that is what Paul is telling to me. You, however, have followed me. You know me. You know my conduct. You know how I've lived out my life. You know how I've lived it out in every place that we have traveled on our missionary journeys. You're living in a place where Paul had stayed three years in Ephesus, and now Timothy is there and says, you know how I lived there. You know how I've lived here. You know how I've lived it out here. You know what I've taught every place that we have gone. And that is the first level of what Paul is encouraging Timothy to do. In, in, the, in light of a world going sideways for Timothy, he says, remember who you have learned from. And notice what he says in verse 14. He says, but as for you, continue in what you've learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Now we're going we're gonna to bring this alongside of another really huge pillar, of maybe a bigger pillar even uh, importantly in Timothy's life than Paul but he's encouraging Timothy to follow his own example. And this is typical of most of the believers in the New Testament. In 1 John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1 verses 1 through 4, the 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 apostle John starting off his uh, his first epistle, his first letter to a church. Notice how he speaks about what he has taught and why he's teaching what he has taught. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now if we just gave this the the, the shorter condensed version, what John is saying is, we lived, we ate, we walked, and we did ministry with Jesus. And what we have seen in him, we are making known to you. Right? What, what we've seen, what we've heard, what we've touched with our own hands concerning the word of life. So for John, for Paul, and for all the other New Testament uh, believers who are writing to these churches, they're not just giving their opinion. They are giving what they have interacted with in Jesus himself to the church. First-hand knowledge. First-hand working understanding of who Jesus is. So when Timothy, tells, uh, when Timothy is told by Paul, you followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, where did Paul get that? He didn't get it anywhere else other than through the person of Jesus. 
Paul was clear in all of his life, his life in Christ, who, where his hope was. And it shows up when he, he mentions in verse 11 the part that we wished he wouldn't talk about. He says, my persecutions, you know my persecutions and my sufferings. And he lists three places, Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. Now, we're not going to uh, spend a whole ton, ton of time in Acts, but I do want you to go to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, we're going to look at Acts chapter 13, 14, and just a, a small little chunk in Acts chapter 16 to fill this out. What is Paul talking about when he tells Timothy, you know about my persecutions and my sufferings in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? Because that might help us just understand a little bit, this little fraction of what Paul is talking about. And as you turn there, I would remind you, as Paul is writing this to Timothy, talking about past persecutions and past sufferings that happened in three places, he is writing from prison, which is where he is actively being persecuted and suffering for Jesus. So what we're going to see here is from, uh, from Paul's first missionary journey all the way to the end of his life, suffering is normal for Paul. And he's encouraging Timothy again to place suffering in a right understanding. Because in a moment he'll go on to say, anybody who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. In Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 13, which we're not going to read the whole chapter, but Paul and Barnabas set out, they're sent out by another church, and they begin to go where the name of Jesus has never been preached before. And as they go, they start in synagogue. They start among the Jewish uh, uh, dispersion of people that are meeting in synagogue. So they start with Jewish background people. They preach the gospel there. And then what often happens with Paul is then the gospel overflows into the non-Jewish people, the, the Gentiles or the Greeks. And in the first majority chunk of chapter 13 of Acts, what you see is Paul and Barnabas faithfully sharing the truth of who Jesus is, and on the initial wave, they have a really positive response. People are asking them, come and tell us again. Share more with us. In fact, in in verse 48 of Acts chapter 13, it says, the Gentiles heard about God's plan for including them into the plan of salvation, and they rejoice and glorify the word of the Lord, and many believe. And it says in verse 49, the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but then notice verse 50. But the Jews inside of the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So what is the first place that Paul references to Timothy is a place where he shared the gospel, there was a response, and then he was driven out. Then he goes to Iconium, and he mentions Iconium to Timothy too. That's right in the next section in Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. It says, now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. And I want to stop really quickly. 
you notice the, the, the means or what persecution and suffering looked like really quickly for Paul and Barnabas in these two places. In the first time, they were just driven out of the district. The second place, it says that they, the, the, the aim was to mistreat them and to stone them. Stoning means that they were looking to kill them. So the first, like two of the first stops on Paul's ever, like his first ever missionary journey, the response is, let's kill this guy. And Paul resolved, right? You're with me here. Paul resolved, like, this is kind of difficult. I don't really think Jesus wants to suffer. Let's go home. No, what does he do? He goes, let's go to the next place. This is going really great. So then they go to Lystra, which is the next section in Acts chapter 14. And if you pick up in verses 19 through 23, we see again the response following. Initially, the people of Lystra want to make, they think Paul and Barnabas are Greek gods that have come in the flesh. And Paul and Barnabas are staving off these people from offering sacrifices to them because they're thinking, wow, these guys are awesome. They're gods. And then like this, it flips. It says, Verse 19, chapter 14. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, get this, this will blow your mind, they returned to Lystra, and to Iconium, and to Antioch. Three places where, well, one, he had just been stoned, another place they had planned to stone him, and the other place they said, don't come back. And he returned back there, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. What's really fascinating is if you drop to Acts chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, we find out that one of these places is where Paul actually, on a second journey, meets Timothy. It says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Just picture, this is the situation in which Timothy comes to faith and Paul and him get connected. Timothy lives in the place where Paul had been stoned and left for dead. So when Paul says to Timothy, you know about my persecutions and my sufferings, Paul, or Timothy is well known in the cities where Paul had been driven out of. And that's where he comes and begins to partner with Paul. And regarding this persecution, if you, if you have your finger still in 2 Timothy chapter 3, regarding this persecution, Paul says, which persecutions I endured, yet from all of them the Lord rescued me. And you contrast this with the group of people ahead of time and the people throughout the letter that Paul has been warning Timothy about, people who are quickly abandoning Paul and abandoning the faith because life is getting difficult. But it says, but you know, you have seen what suffering well looks like. You know what endurance in the gospel looks like. You know the faithfulness of the Lord to deliver me from these things. But then, what would trouble us even more than the fact that Paul was mistreated, 
and they had repeatedly tried to kill Paul wherever he went, is verse 12. This might be a verse that we wish that Paul, by the power of the Holy Spirit, had never uttered to anyone else. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. How many of you feel really good about that line? All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be, what if we just threw some other words in there, will be vilified, will be slandered, will be held in contempt, will be looked down upon, will be pushed at arm's length. Does that fit our view of what it means to follow Jesus? And a question quickly arises for me. Maybe it's arising in your mind too. Why would I or anyone else choose a life of persecution? Potential or realized? I, if you are signing up for something and they say, hey, anybody who wants to do this is going to have a hard life. You know, where's the easy line? Anyone who signs up for this is signing up for difficulty. If you choose this path, you are planning for an increase in suffering in your life. And maybe like me, many of you grew up with um, one of the, the most, I think, influential tracks of my life. And it goes back to, I think, the 1960s, 1970s. The four spiritual laws. The first law of this tract is that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And it usually doesn't follow that really quickly. Like, and wonderful plan means suffering. Why would anyone sign up for this? Why would Paul continue to do this? Like, after three cities where they try to kill him every place he goes, like, this is his first foray into international missions. Why would he keep going? And then why would he write later, as he's in prison, why would he write and encourage Timothy, suffer with me, and help others be prepared to suffer too? And why would anyone else on hearing that say, you know what, I think that is the best way to invest my life? And I think to understand the why, because some of you are probably like, wow, why why did I sign up for this? When was somebody going to tell me that this included suffering? In John chapter 16, Verses 29 through 33, Jesus has, uh, has triumphantly entered into Jerusalem, and now he is in the garden with his disciples, preparing for his arrest, preparing to go to the cross. And he's talking to his disciples about the promise of the Holy Spirit that is coming to indwell them and to give them all that they need to be reminded of all that he's taught and for all, every provision that they need in life. But in verse 29... He's just about telling them that he is, he is going back to the Father. And his disciples say, oh, you're now finally speaking plainly to us and you're not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Like, right, this has been a dialogue between Jesus and his disciples throughout all of his ministry. Who am I? And they keep asking, who are you? And even as Peter says, you're the Christ, but then he says, you can't go to Jerusalem to die. And there's this, there's this tension. And now they finally say, now we know 
that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home and will leave me alone. This is like he's about to be arrested and all the disciples are about to split like that. And he says, Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, or in the world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. The only reason, the only rationale that Paul, Timothy, or any other follower of Jesus might have that would say, suffering in this life is worth it and I can keep suffering, the only way that is worth it is if their life is not found its purpose solely on this side of heaven. If you think that this life that you are living now, the 70, 80, maybe 90 by God's grace years of your life, is all of the good that you will ever see, then by all means protect it with all that you have. But if you think that this 70, 80, or 90 years is just a, just a drop in the ocean of eternity, and life with him supersedes that, and he has overcome all things, and whatever he holds in eternity far surpasses anything you will face in this life, you can go... Suffering is really temporary. The only way that any of us would be willing to suffer is if Jesus really has overcome the world. If he hasn't overcome the world, if he didn't defeat sin and death on the cross and, 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 and finally crush it in his resurrection, then what hope do you and I have apart from him that things could possibly get any better? And why would we embrace a life that could possibly get worse? But if he is, in fact, as Paul says, if he has been raised from the dead, and every person who places their faith in him will likewise be raised with him to a place in a time where there are no more tears, no more suffering, no more illness, no more death, no more sin, no more shame, then it's a drop in the bucket. And you say, well, that's kind of flippant. It is a little bit flippant because nobody likes to suffer. And yet, how can you suffer well? You can only suffer well if Jesus has already suffered for you. Your hope is in him, and now he has defeated all of your enemies, and you're just, you have your eyes firmly pointed on heaven. And so your life spilled out for him is not wasted. I saw this. Uh, I, I was going to print it out, but I'm not that technical yet. I had a, a recently an international missions, kind of like a, a alumni thing group, and they started a, a, a thread on, on when had you experienced some courageous moment. And I just want you to hear two of these. And ask yourself, why would any person go through this? Okay, the first one, he says, is, is a person that wrote, We got spooked after an attempted robbery and a guy stuck a pistol in my face. Long story. Then a few days later, our house burnt to the ground around us and we barely got out in our underwear. We had small children. Our area director graciously let us go home for a month to get ourselves together. I was truly spooked and dreaded going back and felt almost paralyzed with dread and considered resigning. I asked counsel from a wise brother who had done a bunch of combat tours as a Marine. He said, when you get scared like that, you have to decide to be proactive and not be a victim. But anyway, he says, so we went back, and I'm so glad we did. I remember the joy and familiarity of our little town, our place, our home, upon seeing faces of friends and neighbors upon arrival. It was pure joy. We got bucked off the horse, but we got back on. The next one, though, and I, I want you to hear what, what, what the question is that's uh, phrased to them. She writes, One of the courageous moments I recall from the Muslim coast in Mozambique was the time some very recently converted disciples challenged us in the face of persecution. 
Bob, her husband, had been arrested, and the district government had admonished us to stay out of that outlaw territory because, quote, they have their own law there, and we cannot protect you, end quote. When Bob told the new believers we would not be crossing the river again, they asked him, where in the Bible are we instructed to avoid dangerous places and people? So, so we stayed, and there are now 20 con- over 20 congregations of believers in that area. But I'd ask you the same question, those national believers who had this much theological training, ask the people who had shared the gospel with them, where in the Bible does it say we are to avoid difficulty? Where does it say that? On the contrary, how often does Jesus speak about the hope that we have in him in the face of difficulty? The fact that he will give the words to speak, the power of his spirit will be with his people when they face difficulties. That his power and his provision has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. So then we ask the question, though, like, where does, where does this kind of faith come from? Ultimately, it comes through, through Jesus, but then I want you to see also what Paul encourages Timothy to root his life into. In verses 14 through 16, we see that faith also springs from the foundation of God's word. Not just Paul's example. So Paul says, you know how you followed me. You, you, my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. But then he also says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. I think one of the important things that verse 15 raises for us is the primary purpose of Scripture. The primary purpose of Scripture is to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The primary purpose of God's word is to tell you how Jesus came to offer salvation through faith because of his grace. That's the whole arc of of the Bible. How can sinful people be made right with a holy God? And and in what way has God done this through the person of Jesus? So the primary purpose of Scripture is not to tell me who to date. The primary purpose of Scripture is not to tell me which job to take. The primary purpose of Scripture is not to tell me how to make more money. The primary purpose of Scripture is not to tell me how to win more elections. The primary purpose of Scripture is not to win debates. The primary purpose of Scripture is to help you know how you may have salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, anchor your life, right, in the, in, in the sacred scriptures which are able to make you wise so that tell you how you can have salvation in Christ. And then he goes on to say that all scripture from beginning to end is breathed out by God. It's God's own revelation of himself. In other words, it's God telling us who he is and how we are to live in light of who he is. And I love how in Second Peter, it, we kind of get an idea of, of how this works because it kind of blows our mind a little bit. We have human authors, and yet it's God-breathed. In Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, we're catching Peter kind of midstream about the, the, the God's voice speaking over Jesus when he was baptized. But he says, knowing this first of all, 
that no prophecy or of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So one of the foundational things that we believe about God's Word is that it is God speaking through ordinary people. So that God makes Himself known through the personalities of the writers, and yet it's God's very own Word that He wants us to hear. So one of the great temptations of our age is to, 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 to pull back and say, well, what, what did Jesus say? I'll, I'll take Jesus, but I don't really want Paul because Paul is just a person. I'll listen to what the red letters, but I don't want any of the other things. And what we are really saying is that we don't believe, if we do that, we don't really believe that all Scripture is God-breathed. What we're saying is, like, the Scripture that I like is God-breathed. And the Scripture that makes me uncomfortable, well, that's not really Scripture. And the problem is, is if we start to whittle away at what is Scripture and what is not Scripture, then all of a sudden, what is at stake is not just Scripture itself, but the fact that we could be made wise for salvation through faith in Jesus through it. So when we begin to take and take and take and take and take away from the authority of Scripture, what we are left with is a bunch of really good stories on how to be nice to our brothers and sisters, but do not make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ, which is what we most ultimately need. So the story of Cain and Abel is not ultimately how you should treat your brother and not hit him in the head with rocks. The story of Scripture is that we ought to bring our right sacrifice to the Lord, and we ought to offer ourselves wholeheartedly to him, but he is the one who has offered himself wholeheartedly to us. And when we don't offer ourselves wholeheartedly to him, guess what happens? Sin gains a foothold and we do stupid things. And it screws up all kinds of stuff. So from beginning to end, Scripture is screaming, Jesus has come to save sinful people from themselves. But if we whittle it away and say, well, that's not really Scripture, what are we left with? We're left with Jesus is a good example. He's a good moral guy. We should probably follow some of his examples. He teaches the same thing as Buddha and other people. And all of a sudden, we are no longer holding the whole message of what God intended for us. I remember I, was, uh, I started as an English major in college. Uh, it lasted about two semesters. It was great. Uh, and there's, a, there's, a, a, there's a, a way of reading that is introduced at that level where it's called uh, like reader response criticism. Better way to say it is, this means to me whatever I determine it means to me. It does not matter what the author intended for it to say. Which is ridiculous. How many of you have ever written a very direct letter to someone, or maybe given a, a list of things that your children are to have done by the time you get home, and if they were to look at the list and say, it says do dishes, but what I, meant, uh, what I think you meant, mom and dad, was that I was supposed to take a nap and watch television. <laughs> and when it said to sweep the floors, what I think it meant to say was eat some ice cream. Because that's what I got out of it. We would say, well, that's absurd. And yet we might have that same approach to Scripture where we say, well, what does it mean? I don't know. What does it mean to me? It doesn't... Let me, application follows what, the, what, the, what, what it says. What did, what did God intend for us to hear from it? We don't, we don't bring anything but our sin into the text if we're trying to do it our own way. Just as much as, as a professor that teaches that you can read and, and understand it for yourself however it makes you feel, 
would take it as a slight of offense if you said, I don't really believe that your syllabus says what it means. Because I understood it to mean I don't have to do the quizzes and the tests. I, I read that those were optional. So the same teacher that teaches that this is how you read would say, well, that's ridiculous. You can't take my syllabus and treat it that way. In the same way, we come to God's word and say, God, this is what I think you mean for your word to say. Rather than just laying it out and saying, what does it say? And what are we to do as a response to it? But you also see that Scripture has a purpose in the life of the believer. It's breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. I really like uh, Warren Wearsby in his commentary on 2 Timothy. He, he lays out some definitions for this that I think are helpful. So when he says that it's uh, profitable for teaching, he says, for us to know what is right. For reproof, he says, for us to know what is not right. For correction, how to get right. And training in righteousness, how to stay right. That's, that's a pretty simple way of thinking about it, right? What is right? What is not right? How do I get right? How do I stay right? Scripture is useful for, the, for all of that in the life of the believer with a purpose. Verse 17, that the man or the person of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The idea of being complete means that they are fashioned for the purpose of which God has for them. And equipped for every good work is there. They're, they're fashioned for the purpose and they're ready to be used. How many of you have ever had a tool that, that you had but it wasn't? ready, and it wasn't equipped. It's really exciting, isn't it? Like first snowfall, got a snowblower, excited. You're going to throw some snow at your neighbor's yard, and it's not ready, right? And snow is falling and piling up, and snow is not ready. You've been there, right? Or somebody needs to borrow a chainsaw. Chainsaw is dull, not ready. Gas in it's bad, not ready. Maybe the fuel lines are corroded and screwed up, so they won't even pull and crank start. What he's saying is the Word of God prepares us. It cleans us. Like it, it, it does all of the work to present us ready for the work that God has for us. So if, if Scripture is meant to make us wise for the knowledge of who God is and salvation in Christ, and is to equip us for all that we need to know and to walk with Him, Maybe the question that might step on our toes is, why do we neglect it so much? If it is God's good gift of him telling us who he is, how to be right with him, and how to be used of him, how to endure in the face of difficulty, do we treat it as our greatest resource, or do we treat it as just a half-hearted obligation? That it just becomes a checklist of, I, I guess I should do this, but it's disconnected from this is God's gift to know him and to walk with him. This is his, like, his self-giving gift spoken through people, penned to paper. And we live in a time where we can have countless copies of it in our home. And yet, is it moving us? Back to that first question. This is faith producing right action. Am I able to take what I've heard from it and entrust it to others who can entrust others also? Is it having a formative work in my life? It's God's intent and purpose for it. 
And can we, like Paul, say to somebody else, come and follow my teaching, follow my conduct, follow my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, how I hold up in persecution. And apart from the grace of Jesus, how could any one of us say, I could do that. Why don't you come walk with me? May God be producing in us a faith that is firmly founded on his word, an anchor for the soul in difficult times, so that we might replicate faith in the next person and the next person.